welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Richard Sears, here today with Dr. Ann Guy. Dr. Guy is a member of the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry and works with the Secretariat for the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Prescribed Drug Dependence. She's the lead editor and author of Guidance for Psychological Therapists, Enabling Conversations with Clients Taking or Withdrawing from Prescribed Psychiatric Drugs. This guide is endorsed by the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy, the UK Council for Psychotherapy, the National Counseling Society, and the British Psychological Society. Dr. Guy is also a practicing psychotherapist that does not rely on a model of diagnosis to help her clients. Today, we'll be discussing withdrawal from psychiatric medications, problems with psychiatry's over-reliance on the biomedical model, and counseling beyond diagnosis. Hello, Dr. Guy, and welcome, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're just going to jump right into the questions here. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about what brought you to your work and kind of what gave you a critical perspective of the biomedical model in psychiatry? Yes, and it's um, it's a bit of a, a bit of a complicated history. Just that um, I didn't start out as a psychotherapist. My first career was actually in health insurance in the UK. Uh, so I worked for twenty years in health insurance, and I learned a, a thoroughly medical model way of looking at the world through, and you know, obviously health insurance are there primarily to cover um, physical. Um, uh, illnesses and disease, but of course they do cover um, emotional distress, and they simply transfer their model of physical disease onto that of the uh, mental world. And I just accepted that I didn't really understand any differently. Um, but I I retrained as a psychotherapist about um, fifteen years ago, and I slowly began to understand how much of a mistake actually is made in a in an intellectual way actually by the transference of that um, model onto emotional distress and my training as a psychotherapist helped me understand the true root causes of emotional distress as lying really in our environment how we're brought up it's what what's happened to us rather than what's wrong with us so um I guess um, the other part of how I've come to the to the work that I'm doing and the approach that I, I've taken is that as part of my role in health insurance, having started out initially as a claims manager, I I worked improving processes and I learned systems theory and I learned to understand how to deconstruct what was happening in a system in order to understand where things were going wrong and why. So it brings a certain perspective to look at the entire constellation of experiences in which something is happening so that you're not locating the issue in the wrong place. Um, and this is a, is of true of psychotherapy as it is of looking at what's happening in the world of um, psychiatric practice and um, how emotional distress is, is treated in its broadest sense. Um, and I bring that approach, that systems thinking approach, to what's happening in prescribed drug dependence um, and to understand that what's going on, it's not the fault or the issue of any one individual doctor, 
there aren't individuals who are acting, setting out to act maliciously or with intent or, you know, this is a systemic issue um, that's going on and we need to understand it in a systemic way and take those kind of remedial actions, both preventative to stop it happening in future, but also um, corrective actions for those people for whom it's already happened um, and who are in need of support um, and care and advice in order to find a way out of um, where they have inadvertently been led by a system which, uh, uh, unfortunately, for a whole variety of reasons, and some of them are financial, some of them political, the system has led those people to be in that particular place and they, they need support and advice to get out of it. So that's kind of, sorry, rather roundabout way of <laughs> saying how I've arrived at sort of a, a non-medical approach um, through my uh, psychotherapy training and realising that Freud's initial metaphor uh, for mental illness is just that, it's a metaphor. And that actually what he's talking about is the dis-ease of the soul, of the psyche. And the trouble is when one gets mistaken for the other, then it leads you down, it has led a whole, whole systems of thinking in the wrong direction. I'm not saying that's solely down to Freud, but, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of where the metaphor started in, in the modern day. Right. It's really interesting. You started out uh, in the health insurance field. I actually have some questions about that later on, so it'll, it'll tie back in nicely. So, um, a lot of side discipline professionals, if you've, if you've kind of pointed to, um, are really into that biomedical model. It's the, the overwhelming model that's used in most places I've seen, certainly. Um, and as you've said, um, a lot of the, the uh, people that are pushing this model, that are really champions of it, are kind of wrapped up in a system that's, you know, caused them to push that system. So, without, without implicating anyone too much... Um, I do just want to give you an example of like the defense of this biomedical model that I've heard from, from some professionals and just get your reaction to it. So in one such instance, um, I heard a professor and a psychoanalyst compare depression to diabetes and antidepressants to insulin. This professor argued that questioning the efficacy of antidepressants was along the same lines of encouraging diabetics to stop taking their insulin. So given your critical view of the biomedical model in psychiatry, how would you respond to that assertion? I'm, I'm hoping that that kind of assertion that you've heard is increasingly rare because it is based on a very outmoded, um, discredited idea of sort of chemical imbalances in the brain that we know came about through sort of a uh, retrofit of um, pharmaceutical companies thinking, well, this is this is how the drug seems to act, so therefore it must be cure, must be acting in this way in terms of brain chemistry, and we are, it's widely understood that 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 there's no evidence to support that, um, and it's kind of I, I very much um, draw heavily on Joanna Moncrief's work where she contrasts the a disease based view of um, how drugs work uh, versus a drug-based view. So, there is no underlying disease mechanism um, that drugs are acting upon. Uh, they're simply having an effect, and some of those effects can be beneficial some of the time, usually of short duration in very particular circumstances. Um, but the drugs equally can have adverse effects, um, particularly over the long term. And I guess the one the one factual part of the statement that you raised is potentially the 
kind of physical dependence that can arise when you take a drug over a long period of time. And more and more uh, understanding has arisen um, about how um, psychiatric drugs are actually absorbed by the system. And we have um, understanding of how the body reacts to uh, accommodate the extra um, chemicals that it's t um, taking in through the drug um, and gets used to, um, and that it's sort of trying to restore, is it homeostasis, that sort of sense of equilibrium that the body is very good at um, re-establishing. So that when the drug is withdrawn, there's actually a gap and then the body is reacting and creating all sorts of withdrawal responses and it's in reaction to the withdrawal from the drug. So, I would agree with the statement that it's dangerous for somebody who is taking a drug um, like an antidepressant, like insulin, to stop because their body needs it at that point, but for very different reasons than, the, than your speaker was uh, suggesting. There isn't an underlying disease mechanism that the drugs are actually addressing. You know, as we all know, how important it is that anybody who is coming off any kind of prescribed psychiatric drug, that they do that incredibly slowly, uh, incredibly carefully. And we're understanding more and more about what that should look like in terms of um, practicalities. But. And I think, um, I'm not sure why it seems to be this way, but um, it seems like in the UK, you guys are kind of a lot further ahead of us than the, the, in the US. Like, because the the kind of quote that I'm giving you here, this is something that I heard probably two years ago, and it's something that I hear often. And most of the work that I've seen uh, being done that's more critical of the biomedical model is not coming from the United States. I'm not sure what that disparity is about, honestly, but uh, you guys definitely seem to be a bit ahead of us over there. We're very lucky. We've got a very rich pool of researchers who are working as a team, actually, in a variety of ways. Um, pushing forward uh, the knowledge and sharing this amongst um, patient groups. Uh, well, it's, it's the combination, actually, of patient groups, those with lived experience, sharing their experience, us analysing that and understanding it and trying to work out, well, what does that mean is going wrong in our systems? Um, it, there is a particular moment in the UK where we are coming together from across a number of different disciplines to join up all of this knowledge um, with a real hope of influencing what services are available to actually support people going through this. Now, whether we'll be successful or not is another matter. There is still a great deal of misunderstanding about prescribed drug dependence, but in the UK, the real issue we face is its conflation with addiction that people are assuming that it's the same as illicit drug use. And of course, it's very, very different indeed. So actually, the majority of the education that we are doing amongst policymakers is how different it is from substance misuse um, and how different the services need to look as a result. So I think we've got our, our fair share of different kinds of issues, perhaps, that we're addressing in the UK. So, from your perspective, are the side disciplines using drugs responsibly? Um, are we medicating clients responsibly? I think the re all the research shows that I've read that at the moment, psychiatric drugs are systematically overprescribed. And I think that is for a whole host of different reasons. I think those reasons include lack of access to alternatives or the lack of funding, let's say, to adequately provide 
access to alternatives like talking therapies. Although in the UK, we've got an excellent programme of social prescribing link workers being rolled out so that patients can actually be put in touch with a whole host of local resources that might be helpful to them as alternative ways of responding to emotional distress, whether it's a walking group or a yoga group or a singing group or all sorts of different local resources. And um, these link workers are being placed in our GP surgeries and actually helping connect people to the resources available to them. So that's a huge step forward. So there's the lack of alternatives um, being readily available. There's also an expectation amongst some patients that they can just be given a pill to fix this. And unfortunately, cultural and media representations of mental illness and distress, unfortunately, have led some people to believe that a pill is the answer. Um, so, the kind of um, uh, ideas that you were talking about earlier about the chemical imbalance, they do persist. They do persist in the cultural awareness. There's no there's no doubt that they are still um, around. And there is a, definitely a piece of um, public education work that needs to be done. And um, a recent very large review in the UK by Public Health England identified the need to educate actually both the public and our clinicians about um, the real likely benefits and effects of psychiatric drugs and withdrawal from them. I think another reason that they are overprescribed is because when people try and come off the drugs, very often their withdrawal responses are mistaken as relapse. So people come to a belief, oh, well, I've got to be on this drug for life. It's the whole you know, the idea of diabetes and insulin thing. I've got this permanent problem. I've tried to come off. I couldn't cope without the drug. Therefore, I must need it. And un unwittingly, um, clinicians have sometimes reinforced that message inadvertently because there hasn't been the shared and understood knowledge about what's actually going on. Uh, people are experiencing a, uh, a withdrawal reaction to the drug and a lack of knowledge about what that might look like the severity, its likelihood, and how long it can last. And it's only now that that kind of information is really surfacing and we're starting to see um, much higher quality information. So there's been, very recently, our Royal College of Psychiatrists has produced a leaflet about stop, stopping antidepressants, which is based on the most current information. So things are changing. There is better information being pushed out there. But that does mean that there are a proportion of patients who are taking the drugs because of a difficult experience in trying to come off them. So, I think there are a whole variety of reasons why the drugs are ending up being overprescribed. Um, and that actually has a huge cost attached to it. And one of the cases that we're trying to make in the UK is that by understanding the costs associated with overprescription, we can contextualise actually the, co the benefits of providing services to help people come off. So, we're, we're getting close to research uh, which is showing, you know, the, the scale of this and we hope, hope that that will be published in the next couple of months. Could you talk to us a little bit about what a more responsible use of drugs might look like? Like, for instance, how, how often do you prescribe uh, medications in your practice? I'm not a prescriber. I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't prescribe at all. The, the closest I might come to it is if somebody is going through withdrawal that they 
um, hadn't recognised it that I've suggested, or I want, I'm wondering if what you're experiencing might be this, you might wish to discuss with your prescriber, reinstating back to the last point you were stable in order to then come off more slowly. So that would be the closest I would get to uh, recommending that somebody um, look, look at psychiatric drugs. But in terms of how we can move to more responsible drug use, I think the key issue is, is informed consent. I think that that's at the heart of this and that prescribers and anybody involved in the care of anybody who is prescribed them needs the understanding and access to trusted sources of information to support every patient's decision about whether they take a drug to start off with, whether they continue taking it, whether they change their dose, whether they change their drug, um, or whether they decide to come off it. They need the information in order to make an informed choice. And at the moment, that information is not readily accessible. So I think that's the that's the biggest single thing that we can probably do to influence that. Um, so that leads us pretty well into our next question. Um, what responsibility, in your view, do, do service providers have in educating clients about psychotropic medications? We can talk about it in terms of just counseling and, and psychotherapists. I think there's an there's an ethical component. There's a clear ethical component to not wanting to compound harm. So. One of the reasons that we've put together the guidance for psychological therapists is because counsellors and therapists are very often in a very unique position where they're meeting clients who are taking these drugs weekly. We are hearing an in-depth report of their experiences, what they're going through. So we are in a unique position to hear sometimes when somebody might be experiencing withdrawal that others might not have that exposure to. And if we have the knowledge and understanding to spot what's potentially going on, we can't say for sure, then I think it is um, incumbent upon us to actually say, hmm, I'm not sure if you're aware that the kind of experiencing experience that you're talking about, it's possible that could be associated with your withdrawal from or you're, not, you're reducing your dose of, of this drug. Is that something you've looked into? But always keeping a very important distinction between giving medical information and giving medical advice. As psychotherapists and counsellors in the UK, we would never go, we would never look at giving medical advice. We're not medics. But there's nothing to stop us giving good quality medical information. And of course, we all do that for each other every day in normal life. We're always, you know, talking about medical information. So signposting and just highlighting the possibility of something could save somebody years of suffering. I think that's the key to this. Being Having that bit of extra knowledge to be able to hear what might be going on could save a client years of suffering. So, um, I think this is why we are encouraging psychological therapists to educate themselves so that in that moment, if it should crop up and if it's right for that client and in that therapy at that time, they know enough to be able to spot it and say it. It's not every client, every conversation. It's not something that you would automatically bring up. It's always within the frame of how you work as a therapist. It's always subject to what's best for the client. In the same way as we're talking about informed consent for patients, the guidance is aimed at giving the information to therapists so that they can decide for themselves how and when is appropriate to use that in their practice and with their clients. So, as kind of a, 
an aside to that same question. Um, I read in the guide um, about some clients maybe using psychotropic medications in a way that, that could mimic addiction, that maybe looks like addiction. Um, if you have a client that is using psychotropic medications in a way that could mimic addiction or that could maybe cause them suffering or harm, um, does a service provider, a, a psychotherapist, do you think they have um, a responsibility to bring that to the client's attention to say, you know, the use of, like you mentioned, if they're using um, a medication and they're withdrawing from it, you might say, you know, perhaps some of these things that you're dealing with could be as an issue of withdrawal. Would you ever say that about like a client taking a medication? Perhaps some of these issues you're having are due to ingesting this medication. Certainly if somebody's started taking a psychiatric medication when you're working with somebody and you know you're noticing an effect so um, maybe it's in some ways having the desired effect of blunting emotions and it may mean that in from a thera therapeutic point of view they're not having access to emotions in the same way that might be something that you wonder about and say you know I'm noticing this and wondering what you think that's about what's your experience of taking the, the prescribed drugs but I think inherent in your question is this fundamental distinction between addiction and dependence. And addiction is something very different and is usually, usually involved with illicit drug use rather than prescribed, rather than taking a prescribed drug. So we're very, try to be very clear about the language that we use around prescribed drugs, that people aren't using them, they're taking them because they've been told to. So, they're taking as prescribed rather than using a drug. And it's very rare, to be honest, with psychiatric drugs that you see what might be described as addictive behavior. You know, it's not, it's not usually the kind of thing that uh, people are trying to buy them from illicit sources um, unless, unless a prescriber has decided for some reason to cut somebody's supply off to cut their prescription because they think the use is problematic and said, right, I'm, you know, not prescribing it for you anymore. That's the kind of thing that can can encourage some people to actually seek other sources for what had been a prescribed drug if they are still physically dependent on it. But it's more common in my experience that people don't realize that they're dependent on it. Right. It's more it's more common that people don't recognize that dependence, that withdrawal can happen even if um, they miss one dose, for example, or they change the brand of the drug. Occasionally, some people report that even changing the brand of the same drug can cause a problem, um, that people can reach a tolerance or poop out, I think it's sometimes called when the effect of a drug wears off. But actually, you can experience withdrawal while taking the drug because um, it's it, your, your body needs more of it. But very few people would identify that as addiction. So, you know, we're, we're trying to establish a bit of clear blue water between those kinds of different characteristics that go with it, not because physically, and I'm, I'm aware that physically some of the same things are happening inside the body, but psychologically and socially, they're very, very different things going on. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, the, the, the difference between addiction and dependence there. Um, so, 
how can a psychoanalyst or a therapist uh, support their client in withdrawing from medications? I know there's a lot about this in the guide, um, and I think a lot of our listeners will be really interested in this. There are three. There are three stages to how 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 you can help somebody, and it's about what you can do to help somebody prepare to withdraw from their drug, um, how you can support them during, and what they might need after, afterwards, and. In many ways, one of the dominant things just to mention here is that this might not be regarded as what we would regard as normal therapy. So, this is actually supporting somebody to do something very particular. And in many ways, we're kind of stopping doing some of the things that we might normally be doing and potentially being more directive than we might normally be with somebody. But if if a client is decided that they want to withdraw and we feel able to offer to help them through that, then there is a structure that we can adopt. So, perhaps not surprisingly, as part of preparation, you know, you just talk about, well, you know, their readiness to begin. What fears do they have? Have they tried before? What was that like? Did they, have they had some unsuccessful attempts? And how did that pan out? Have they got a knowledgeable prescriber who is going to help them devise a tapering plan and help them track their responses and manage their dosage accordingly? And if they don't, where might they try and find that information? So, at the moment, the majority of the best information is online. And I think that's sort of a to recycle a quote, a truth universally acknowledged that it's it, it currently largely online. It's getting better. There is the leaflet from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Um, but the idea of actually taking the uh, withdrawal for so slowly that you're only doing like 10% of your dose at a time, just starting to give some very basics around how slowly some people need to go so that they can recognise good information from bad information and giving them access to some trusted sources where they might go for that information is helpful. You might actually discuss the possibility and the nature of withdrawal effects they might experience just so that they understand what they might be looking out for or how to find out that information. Um, What's the difference between withdrawal reaction and relapse? So that they don't mistakenly blame themselves or think that they're dep- they must you know must need this drug because I can't cope. Um, that they place uh, responsibility with the drug and not with themselves. Um, who's going to support them? What do their family and friends understand about what they might be attempting? What support they might need? Are they working? How are they going to manage this around their responsibilities? And some very practical things they we can give them access to um, logs that you can people can use to help track their doses and their reactions so that they can decide how quickly or slowly to take their withdrawal. And actually one thing that I think is really helpful is that we can be very clear about what support we as therapists can give. So is it okay for them to contact us outside of our normal session times? And if it's not, where can they go? You know, if they have a, um, a a crisis of some kind and need some support, then actually where can they go for that? Um, there, there sometimes aren't a lot of places that people can go, but you need, I think it's best to set expectations clearly about that up front. So that's kind of all the preparation to make sure somebody's in the right headspace and ready for what they might be attempting. During withdrawal, then it's really then building on that. 
um, helping them to understand if they are experiencing withdrawal reactions, normalizing. Yeah, we, we knew that was on the list and helping them um, explore what it is they're experiencing. Mm. Very much encouraging them to go at their pace. It's so important when you speak to anybody involved in supporting people through withdrawal, it's so important that the person feels that they're in control of the pace of withdrawal, um, that they're doing it as and when they're ready. Although I think the one exception to that is when somebody's trying to do it too quickly, I can understand that um, people who do know about this stuff are going to be cautioning people against that quite strongly because of knowing the risks associated with that. So during this withdrawal process, really, you might be suspending any deeper psychological work because you can't tell what's going on at this point, whether something that's arising for somebody, whether that's a withdrawal reaction or whether it's something that they need to work on. So you kind of need to suspend normal therapeutic goals during certainly during the worst of withdrawal reactions, um, and help the client understand coping mechanisms. There's a whole list of things that, through trial and error, people have discovered can help deal with the waves of reactions that you might experience. Um, and the guidance that we've put together has got some really useful lists and resource links um, to all of those kind of coping mechanisms. So, helping people understand what works for them, giving them options, and really just continuing to be that warm and attentive therapeutic presence, really, so that they're not, they're not on their own. I think a lot of people feel very isolated in withdrawal, that they think they're going through it on their own until suddenly they might just discover some of the online forums and then they realise they're not alone. But then reading some of the experiences on those forums can be quite scary because, there are people on there who've suffered quite extreme reactions for long periods of time. So, you know, they can be a mixed blessing. There's a, a lot of information, but some can be scary. And then after withdrawals complete, um, it's kind of then assessing, well, where have we washed up? What, what are you left with? Has there been any lasting damage from taking the prescribed drugs and withdrawing from them? Um, that might still be being recovered from. Sometimes there are some cognitive problems or sometimes people have experienced it quite traumatically, particularly if they've had a breakdown in their relationship with their prescriber or one of their doctors and they can feel really quite rejected and um, hurt that their experience has not been understood and validated by their prescriber. Um, so, kind of providing a space for people to acknowledge those feelings and uh, it, it can be very helpful. And also that's the point at which you then reevaluate with the client, okay, what work have we got left to do in terms of your therapeutic journey? That might be it. They, they might have done their work and then come off the drug and that might be it. That might be the end of what you do with them. Or there might still be stuff to process which now they're off their drug it's now clearer, ah, okay, no, this is still an issue and I need to work on it. So, there's there's quite a few things that we can do. They're, they're not rocket science. We call this the common, um, what do we call the common wisdom approach because it really is pulling together the experience of those people who've been doing this for the last 15 to 20 years. This is what can help and we've tried to put it together in one place.
Yeah, so it was a really great guide, um, the one that I read. Uh, the short version is really good, too. We're going to put some links up for that as well. Um, so many people that are receiving treatment for mental health issues in the United States, um, they, they pay for the treatment using health insurance. Um, I've actually worked in some crisis stabilization units, and the vast majority of people that we saw were, were using health insurance to go there. Um, and in order for insurances, ins- insurers to pay for services, um, a diagnosis has to be given to the client. That's kind of the, the first step here a lot of times. Uh, so again, this means that in the U.S., most service users' mental health treatment begins with diagnosis. Um, what problems can you see with that system, a system that kind of starts with diagnosis before you're able to receive any kind of treatment whatsoever? I, I agree with you. It's problematic. And I guess there are some distinctions to be drawn here. There's a difference potentially between assigning a code for a system, for an IT system somewhere, just so that a bill can be paid. There's a difference to doing that to a medical doctor sat in front of a patient saying, I am diagnosing you as anxious, as depressed, as whatever. I think there's a performative element to a diagnosis by a medical doctor in person, which is not quite the same as simply a code being selected on a back office system somewhere. So, I can only go by, I'm I'm largely going to talk about the UK experience of health insurance because that's, that's what I know. And I now work with as a as a provider of services for for health insurance for some of my clients. In the UK, the systems use the International Classification of Diseases system, the ICD-10 system. And actually, when you look at that, there are some codes which are not pathologizing. So, for example, you can select a code for a state of emotional shock and stress, unspecified. You can select a code for burnout. So, within the ICD-10 groups of codes, there are codes which are not actually as wedded to the medical model as others. So, I think we might argue that this is kind of just uh, finding a way round from a conscience point of view. How can I do this without feeling like I'm diagnosing? And the trouble is when you're working within these organisations and structures, as I, uh, I mentioned earlier, Their entire system is based on a medical model. So, they refer to conditions and treatments and the whole language being used is a medical language. But as practitioners, we we have choices about how far we go along with that. I think that's what I'm saying. And I think um, certainly in the UK, I feel that I practice in a non-medical model way, but I can still I can still work with clients who've got health insurance and I don't feel that I'm compromising either my way of working or or the understanding that I'm promoting with my client about what's going on for them. And actually, in the UK, um, with some health insurers, people can self-refer for talking therapy so they don't have to actually go through a doctor. So, really, the only thing that happens is this code gets set on a system somewhere. So, whether that's regarded as being exactly the same thing as diagnosing. No, I can see. I, think how I would argue. Yeah, I can see how it's very different from like saying that to the patients, like you described, saying you know you have this thing versus just entering a code. Certainly, 
So in the U.S., um, it's really rare to see service providers or psychotherapists um, work outside the bounds of diagnosis at all. Again, it's so tied to just everything we do here. Um, and it is, um, in my experience, it's typically given to the patient as well as a diagnosis. So I don't know. There may be a, a lot of other places where they do the kind of back office diagnostic codes. Uh, but in my, in my experience in the crisis stabilization units, they do. So a lot of these diagnostic codes are involved in this stuff. And it's really rare. Um, I don't know of any therapist here that, that work outside of those bounds. So I'm just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. Like, how do you go about the the work that you do in counseling without, you know, kind of constantly referring to this diagnostic system? Because it was inherent in my training. So my training very much takes the approach, took the approach that, um, if anything, psychotherapy is an educational practice rather than a medical practice. It's about restoring our ability to learn from experience that may have been interrupted or not developed in certain ways. So I have never regarded what I do as being a medical practice. And I remember even in my very first training placement, I was working in a GP surgery. And before my clients, I would be using a GP's room, not, you know, for the day to see clients. And I remember that I would be taking posters off the wall, medical posters off the wall. I would be hiding medical equipment. I would hide anything medical I could in the room and put it all on the, you know, there's a, usually a, an examination couch and you can draw a curtain around it. I would pile all of this medical paraphernalia on the couch and hide it behind the curtain to try and demedicalize the room as much as I could. And I would be very clear in my language that you're my client, you're not my patient, mm. you know, and all of the language I would use, I was so aware from it, aware of it. I think because of my experience in health insurance, and then I could absolutely see the contrast so clearly when I first started training, it was a big issue for me for day one, that I would not slip into that language, which is very seductive. And I ended up doing my doctoral research in understanding the impact of the medical model on the practice of psychotherapy and counselling and understanding all the different ways it can seep into the work if you're not aware of it. And there's a marvellous quote uh, by a, uh, a UK uh, therapist and writer, uh, Pete Sanders, that he says, if we think sick, we will see sick. And it's about not, it's about making it visible, making this cultural and um, philosophical and structures that we just taking it's very easy just to take as being well self-evident this is a medical issue it's a health issue therefore um, this language is appropriate actually it's really not and no no training in psychotherapy in the UK understands um, psychological distress as stemming from a biological cause. None of them do, but some of them do adopt the language. And I think there's um, a misunderstanding about the risks associated with adopting the language of medicine because of what it brings with it. And this is where the, the medical model is not just about whether we diagnose or whether we prescribe or what we think of those things. It's also in the power that gets taken 
by the therapist? You know, is there a kind of a doctor-patient relationship going on or is there something more equal of two human beings having a conversation? It seeps into the work in all sorts of uh, different ways that I think we need to be constantly on guard for. And there is a seduction and a cultural bias and a um, a lot of forces pushing therapists towards adopting the kind of language, particularly if you work inside the health service. It takes a lot to keep resisting it. And eventually, I chose to work outside the health service because that battle became just too dominant. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I was very much feeling like it was the wrong place. It was the wrong setting for me to be doing my work. So I chose to move into private practice. And that kind of leads us really well into this next question. Um, wonder if you could talk a little bit about any consequences or pushback that you've experienced due to your, you know, the critical view of the biomedical model you have. I was giving this some thought and I'm so aware that so many people who I work with in this field um, absolutely have experienced a large amount of pushback or, 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 or issues. And I think I've been, I don't know whether lucky or in protected places that I actually haven't. Um, I'm lucky enough because I'm in private practice. I'm not dependent on any organization or any employer. Uh, for my income. So, all of the work I do in prescribed drug dependence, virtually all of it has been voluntary. So, I'm not, it, it simply doesn't matter what an organisation might might think of me or otherwise. And actually, so what we're doing is evidence-based. And I find that when you talk to people and actually engage with people and help them understand this is the current information what, where is it you're coming from? And when you actually engage with people and start talking about the real information that's available, most people are shocked. And I think, you know, I was certainly shocked when I read Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, um, which I, I read back in, uh, on, in on holiday, and I think it was in 2016. And I was just frankly shocked. My, my jaw dropped. I was horrified that as a therapist, I might be inadvertently compounding the harm of what was going on. And that led me to get involved in this entire entire field. So, I think in comparison to other people, I've been lucky. I've been, I haven't experienced that kind of, that kind of pushback. And actually, I've experienced a far greater range of positive experiences of working with people who are so committed to righting a wrong, really, that recognising that there's an injustice being done at the moment with the lack of recognition um, for this issue and how many people find themselves trapped in a situation where they're not getting the support that they need uh, to be able to uh, heal and recover uh, from that situation. And I must say, when we, were, when we were doing the guidance, how refreshing it was that everybody we approached to be involved just said yes. There was no argument. There was nobody who said no. Everybody just said yes. And pretty much everybody gave their time voluntarily to do it. So, it, it was a real pleasure to be involved in that project and I've, I've uh, enjoyed being able to be part of that. And um, just the last question here that we're going to talk about, um, can you think of anything that you learned in your work um, that most of us probably don't know and maybe we could benefit from knowing? I think... If I'm talking, if we're talking specifically really around prescribed drug dependence and withdrawal, 
I think I was just surprised at the number of different ways that withdrawal can occur or the number of different places it can occur, you know, in just missing a dose, um, in switching between drugs, in switching brands, as I referred to earlier. Um, and I think I, I think a number of people are surprised, actually, at the any time a drug is changed, pretty much, there's an opportunity for withdrawal reactions to occur. And um, I think that surprised me, just that range. And I think the potential severity of impact has been so misunderstood. And I think this is trying to get across the magnitude of what this experience can be like for people who end up experiencing potentially years of debilitating withdrawal reactions, losing jobs, families, houses, everything that they previously held as part of themselves. And I think this is coming back to the whole issue of informed consent, is that clearly you don't want to scare somebody so much that they might not take a drug that they could actually really benefit from but they need to be there needs to be this understanding of what is at stake and i think particularly when it comes to informing people properly about how to withdraw safely this is what's at stake and this is why i think campaigners in this field work so tirelessly to get this message across because people have been so damaged by it um, and recognising that, you know, 20% of the UK population are currently prescribed one of these drugs. This is a large amount of people who are potentially going to be impacted by this. Uh, my wife actually gave me the same, it's the same percentage here in the United States. Uh, yeah. My wife was talking to me about this the other day and I had the same reaction. I was just <laughs> flabbergasted by that number. And if you are female and if you are old and if you are poor, then those figures just increase. So, yeah, this is a, this it's a it's a it's an urgent situation to actually that needs um, some some real action to put some services in place to help people deal with it. Right, very heavy stuff. Very interesting. Um, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It's been a, it's it's been very interesting chance for me to reflect on some of the things that I've been involved with and how how quite I've arrived at where I've arrived at. But thank you for the chance to talk. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.